Christian McBride, one of the most acclaimed bassists today, and surely one of the youngest, has played with the leading jazz musicians and artists of our time, including Freddie Hubbard, Joshua Redman, McCoy Tyner, Pat Metheny, Dana Crawl, and James Brown. He seems to be able to navigate a whole host of musical genres, playing with the likes of Sting and Queen Latifah. And a few nights ago, he shared the stage with Chick Corea, John McLaughlin, and Kenny Garrett at UC Berkeley's Zellerback Hall. Some refer to that show as phenomenal, as all the musicians on stage, experts with their instruments, created magic together. According to McBride, that's what makes all the hard work of being a musician worth it. Those two hours where he experiences a kind of spiritual awakening, a reminder of the glory of what he does and the capacity of jazz to open one's mind and soul. Christian McBride grew up around music in Philadelphia. His father and great uncle were both bassists, and he himself began playing at a very young age. At 17, he was set to go to Juilliard, the top music school in the country, and one of the best in the world. But it turned out that when he arrived to New York, word on the street was that a great bassist was moving to the area, and he was immediately picked up by some of the greatest bands around. Since then, he has truly played with the legends, a highlight being at Carnegie Hall with Sonny Rollins and Roy Haynes in 2007, amongst countless others. My name is Sonny Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, a weekly program that speaks with artists of all different mediums to uncover the unseen aspects of their work and exploring the ways in which they see the world. Last week, I had the pleasure of speaking with the immensely affable and humble McBride in his dressing room at Zellerbach Hall. We spoke about the power of jazz to open one's mind. We explored the essence of spirituality. And McBride shared stories about the early days of meeting his wife. Stay tuned for that and more on this week's Sight Unseen. Since we're in Berkeley, it's a very apropos story. We met at a, at a peace rally. <laughs> what was the peace rally for? Uh, this was right after the war in Iraq broke out. They had a, uh, a big march from Times Square down to Washington Square Park in New York. And uh, I participated. And I had my, you know, my, my banners and my buttons and, you know, I had my little daisy in my hat and everything. And I'd actually known Melissa long before that, but we never, you know, we just never connected. But that night after the rally, she had been there as well, so... We, we both like to say that that was the only good thing that happened during the Bush regime. I actually think I was, I also met my husband right around that rally. Is that the day right? before that rally. In New York? Yeah, in New York, ah. at a cafe in New York. So did she know that, um, I mean, so if, she, if you've known her for a long time, she knew that you're a successful bass player and a successful jazz musician. Yeah, it's a funny story. My wife's name is Melissa Walker. She's a vocalist, and there were two instances that happened long before that peace rally that uh, made our already non-existent friendship even worse. First one was in 1998, I believe, yeah, 98. There was a jazz cruise in Philly, WRTI, uh, the jazz radio station, Temple University in Philly. They had a jazz cruise and my band was the featured band and Melissa's group was on the bottom deck and we were on the top deck. And the way it was supposed to happen 
was we were supposed to switch decks. We were going to play from eight to nine on the top deck and then take a half hour break for a changeover and then play from 10 to 11 on the bottom deck. But you know how it is with bad production. Not our, not our guys, but, but the cruise people. Uh, they didn't even have the music, they didn't even have the, the place all set up, up on the top deck till about nine o'clock. So we didn't go on, we didn't even start playing till about 9.30. So uh, <laughs> after a while my road manager was like, well, there's not gonna be enough time to switch, cause the cruise was over at midnight. Whoa. He said, well look man, why, we might as well just stay up here. It don't make no sense to try to s- switch. It would be, it'd be much easier if the people downstairs just walked upstairs you know, did it that, that way. So I guess apparently, I, I don't know what the big deal was, but my road manager went down and talked to Melissa's people and said, well, look, we're just going to stay up on the top. It doesn't try to make sense to try to break down and go up to the switch decks. So Melissa's people were like, well, no, that wasn't the deal. We were supposed to do this and we were supposed to do that. And, you know, I don't understand why y'all trying to bully us. And they said, we're not bullying you. It's 930. There's not enough time. So uh, after the gig was over, I saw one of Melissa's band members, and they were like, man, you better call Melissa. She's upset. I was like, about what? He said, well, she wanted to play on the top deck. I said, why does it mean that much to her? It's the same people. <laughs> so um, I called her up, and she was like, uh, look, I know you're a big star and everything, and this is your hometown, and people paid to see you, but I wanted an opportunity to play on the top deck. I said, well, you would have had had they started on time, it wasn't my fault. You know, so that was strike one. Strike two happened in um, <laughs> 2000 at the Mount Hood Jazz Festival in, right outside of Portland, Oregon. And um, it was one of those, you know those jazz festivals? I, I, I don't like these kind of festivals where they put on five or six different bands simultaneously. Mm-hmm. So you don't get to see anything. You don't get to see anything, you know, you don't really get to absorb anything because you hear this band and then right away you go hear somebody else and that kind of just cancels out what you just heard. And then at the end of the night, it's just sensory overload. You know, you can't really grasp all that music going on at the same time. Anyhow, apparently Melissa's band was on the same time as my band was on another stage. And, you know, she does real sweet, you know, kind jazz. And, you know, my band is like this. You know, it's big and loud and brawny and, you know, for the guys. <laughs> <laughs> so unbeknownst to me, I saw Melissa about a year later, and she was like, you know, you ruined my gig at Mount Hood. I don't know what it is. Every time <clears throat> we're on the gig together, you just sabotage me. I'm going, what now? What did I do this time? First is the ship, and now Mount Hood. I said, what happened? She said, well, I was trying to sing a ballad. And you guys were just bashing. <laughs> and the sound was coming all the way over to my stage. And, you know, you drowned us out. I was like, once again, wasn't my fault. <laughs> but the Warren Rock fixed all that. Yeah. <laughs> the only good thing out of the Bush administration. That's right. That's right. So, um, you know, I was looking at your schedule. I mean, it's just so busy, let alone all the other things that you do in your life. But I do want to just start with your schedule and, um, and ask you what it's, what it's like to be that busy. I mean, your life has been full since you kind of started, it sounds like. It hasn't really stopped. So, I mean, is that, is that a challenge for you? Is it exciting for you? Could you imagine it any other way? Is that just how you would be even if you weren't a bassist, even if you were doing something else? It's just constantly moving and doing things? 
Well, I tell you, I feel very fortunate. I feel very blessed uh, that I've been able to be so busy, you know, for the last 20 years. Uh, at the same token, I really did my very best before I moved to New York to prepare and to put myself in the position to be this busy. However, it does get very, very tiring. The actual act of traveling, you know, like getting on a bus or getting on an airplane, just kind of, you know, the act of traveling, that got old a long time ago. That gets old really quickly. And it, it's still somewhat amusing to me that uh, sometimes a lot of people don't really understand that we are on a working schedule when we're touring. We're not touring in the sense that we get to go sightseeing and, you know, we're going to go on a cruise for a few days or go to, you know, stay at some resort. You know, we're staying at some Motel 6 a lot of the times, playing the club, and then we're leaving the next day. And we have to do it that way in order to make some money. And people are like, oh, well, you can't stay out and hang for a few days. It's like, well, who's going to pay for that? You know, you just don't go on the road and hang and go sightseeing and enjoy yourself. We're, we're on a work schedule. So that does get very, very hard. It makes, what makes it all worthwhile is that there are two hours out of every night where that is the most perfect time and the happiest you could ever be in your life. When you're on stage and playing in front of a bunch of people and really getting to react and, and, and make music with all of these great musicians, that makes it all worthwhile. So for two hours every night, the world is, is a perfect place. Which is a beautiful thing. So very few people can really say that, probably. Yeah, I'm sure right. very few people can say that. And you get to meet a lot of beautiful people. You know, I, yeah, I look at somebody like a Chick Corea or a John McLaughlin who have been all over the world millions of times over the last half century, you know. And, you know, people love them all over the world. They know people all over the world. They appreciate it all over the world. And that's, that's the real gift, you know, because it's almost in the sense where no matter where you are, there's somebody who appreciates what you do. That's really a great thing. I feel that way about being a journalist. I get to meet people yeah. like that. And it's, a, it's something I really value very deeply. And I think that's very true. There's a romanticism about touring yeah. that's so false. Even I have it. I saw someone that works with Chick Corea had a Motel 6 uh, thing in his front pocket, and I thought, Motel Six? Are they staying in Motel Six? You know, but it's it's. That we did last night. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely, there's definitely a romantic thing to it. But um, aside from also being busy with touring, you do all these other things. Like, uh, and one thing that I was particularly attuned to is bringing jazz to to kids to youth, since jazz was such a part of your own youth. Right. How did it actually affect your growth as a human being? Why do you think it's fundamental to have that? Not just in Oh, that's great. Not just in the culture of, um, say, you know, just to know the history of American culture and American jazz music, but just like emotionally speaking, why is it important to know jazz? Well, I think jazz is the one and only art form where you really, where at the end of the day, you get to express yourself to the most extreme level uh than you can anywhere else. I mean, I guess it depends on who you are as a person. I mean, I guess as an athlete, maybe you get to express yourself in some kind of way 
through your sport. But as an athlete, you have a very short career. You know what I mean? You could be a musician, you know, God willing, I'm going to play until my 80s or 90s. You know, you're going to play as long as you live. Most musicians do. But as a jazz musician, your job is to learn as much vocabulary as humanly possible and to translate all of that vocabulary, mix it in with your own personal feelings, mix it in with your own personal take on things, and express that through your instrument. And um, that is the ultimate goal of the music. You know, it's, you're supposed to be able to express yourself with these certain tools that you learn as a jazz musician, and that comes from experiencing you know, learning the science of music as well as, that's another thing I think gets romanticized a lot, like music, people still view it as like fun or as, <laughs> as a hobby or, or you mean there's theory that goes to it? Or you mean there's something other than just playing? <laughs> yes, there are notes, there are chords, there are scales, there are modes, there are rhythms, there are a whole lot of doctrines that you must learn, a whole lot of tools that you must learn, a whole lot of hours that you have to practice to be able to express yourself. And um, I think jazz is the only kind of music where you are allowed to take that as far as you possibly can. It doesn't have to be that way, but that's just kind of turned, that's how it's turned out. Like uh, a lot of popular music, it's not necessarily made for artistic expression, it's f to make money, it's to, uh, is, is sort of a, a blatant exploitation of the teen sentiment, you know, uh, or the the lowest common denominator, so to speak. It does, it's not necessarily made to take you to a higher level of self-consciousness. It doesn't, and once again, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's just kind of how it's turned out. Jazz has always been the most explicit level of freedom, I think, as an artist. So when you're learning that as a kid, oh my goodness, you 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 mature, you um, you learn to appreciate different cultures, you learn to appreciate different people. It allows you to step out of your own box because you know as a child you do. It's not a bad thing. That's just how it is. You get into your box. You know what I mean? It's like you grow around. You grow up around the same people in your neighborhood. You know, you're taught a certain thing from your parents and you learn a certain thing from your neighborhood. But when you are able to experience art on a deep level like that, you could be in your own home or in your own box and be able to go other places in your head and in your heart and on your instrument. So that, that, that's why music is so needed, you know. Which, by the sounds of it, you must have gotten that as a kid. I mean, again, there's that sense of romanticizing childhood or romanticizing memory. But do you think as a kid um, you had that freedom, that exploration, that imagination, that that freedom to do that because of your background, because of the family you're coming from? Absolutely. I feel fortunate that um, I have a family that was uh, involved in the music world. My father plays bass. My great uncle plays bass. My uncle, uh, my mother's brother, who passed away a few years ago, he worked for a popular radio station in Philly. So I was always going to live concerts when I was a kid. So I was able to kind of disconnect from the world and, and be up there with them. You know, I, I can remember like seeing a lot of gospel concerts with Albertina, Albertina Walker and the Mighty Clouds of Joy and and then, you know, seeing James Brown and, and Wilson Pickett and... Michael Jackson and whoever, all these great R&B stuff, the Isley Brothers, and I could get into that and say, wow, and I could just fly away mm -hmm. out of my brain, you know? Uh, and then once I started to 
really discover the bass, yeah, I was able to dream and imagine and paint my own pictures, you know. If there was something I was experiencing that, you know, seemed to be negative, experiencing art and really learning about music allowed me to kind of take that negative and turn it into a positive, you know. So that, that's the beauty of, of art. Absolutely, and that's it's so necessary. I mean, it is that that, that particular ability to turn a negative into a positive is yeah. is so necessary to actually survive in life, yeah. and it's great for kids to know that. Absolutely, you still have to put it into practice all the time because so, you know life happens. You know what I mean. And as much of an artist as you can be, or as you aspire to be. You know, there are going to be times in life where, yeah, you might lose your temper or somebody will tick you off or you'll get sad. You know, this is not to say that learning art will prevent that from happening, but it gets you to a level where you have so many options. It brings you to almost to a level of spirituality, you know, talking about religion, because, you know, hanging around a whole lot of musicians, you know, a lot of musicians have embraced a lot of different religions and particularly somebody like John McLaughlin, we were talking one time, and he says, uh, well, I don't necessarily think of myself as religious. Now, before I tell you what he said, I think this is what music can do to you. If you really experience it underneath, not just in terms of, oh, yeah, I can get famous, or yeah, I can sell a whole lot of records, or yeah, I can make a whole lot of money and have a big house, but if you really understand what the music can mean, I think it could take you to what John McLaughlin was saying, which is kind of how I feel. He said, well, you know, I don't really believe in any one particular religion because at the end of the day, you're all trying to get to the same place, wherever that is. You can call it you can call it heaven. You can call it whatever you want to call it. You can call your God, God. You can call him Jehovah. You can call him Allah. You can call him whatever you want to call him. But at the end of the day, it's all just different routes to the same end place. You know, he says, so I think of myself more as spiritual than religious, you know, whatever that is out there, I believe in that, you know. So, and that's that's where I am as a person. I think art, uh, particularly jazz, can get you to that place quicker, you know, where you just are able to take it all in and get underneath all this surface stuff, you know. And and it's really hard, particularly in America, because this is the land of plastic, you know. This is the land of bull if you don't mind my saying, you know, this is the land of Botox and, you know, 80-year-old women trying to look 40, you know, just for their own vanity and men, you know, running the store, getting Viagra, you know, and men getting hair transplants. For what? You know, it has to do with something surface, not with anything that has any real true meaning. So uh, I think art can really help you get beyond that. Do you, did you grow up with religion in your life? Did you grow up with a sense of spirituality in your life? Not particularly. I mean, I mean let me put it this way. Yes, I was raised in a Baptist house. Um, my grandmother is, is, a, is a, as she would say, a good Christian woman. Uh, <laughs> so, so was my mother. But I was always very appreciative that my mom, she was a new school parent. You know, my mom was this type of mom that taught me you don't have to go to church every Sunday to be spiritual. You don't have to be in church all day on Sunday and Bible thumping in order to believe in God. You know, we would go to church every now and then, and my mom would say, you know, see that person down there? You know, you know, you know, she's an alcoholic. 
you know, that guy over there sells drugs, or this person here does that. I said, but they're in church. You know, I thought, aren't they religious? And my mom was like, well, that's what I'm telling you. You know, some of the biggest hypocrites are right here in this room. She said, you don't have to be here to be spiritual or religious. So she taught that to me as, as a young kid. So uh, I grew up learning about the Bible. I, I didn't really retain a lot of it, <laughs> but uh, I certainly had a very deep grounding of God and, and spirituality as a kid. And then once I got older and started meeting a lot of other people uh, and traveling the world and seeing all these different religions, I was like, wow, okay. And of course, what John said makes all the sense in the world. You know, it's just like, why you want to be part of one particular group that believes in one particular thing? That's a box, you know? We want to be outside of that box. We want to fly. So that's where I am, man. My grandma talks about that. I remember, like, just last year, she was reading the teachings of Buddha. Right. And she was saying that, I mean, she's a very open minded woman and yeah. someone that I respect very much. And she was saying, you know, it's all, they're all the same. They're all, they're all going towards the same thing. And, That's right. and the other day I was interviewing um, this guy named Lawrence Ferlinghetti who started City Lights and he published all these great authors and he Ooh. said that all these beat poets were just looking to find the light. That was right. the, and I think right. that's a, so, it, but this is gonna, might be my own misconception, but with jazz, I'm feeling maybe the reason why you might feel like it has that freedom to bring you to that more open, higher space. Is that at all having to do with the improvisational aspect of it, yes. the freedom of that? Yes, absolutely. Um, that's, that's that highest level of artistic expression I was talking about, where somebody can give you, okay, here's an apple, here's an orange, and here's, here's a banana. Make something out of that. Now, that's a very vague uh, question to give someone. But if you give that question to a jazz musician, they'll be like, oh, okay, I know what you mean. Uh, they could play it on their instrument, or they actually do something with the fruit <laughs> itself and say, okay, well, that's what that is. You know what I mean? Uh, and that's what improvisation is all about. And sometimes I think improvisation gets too simplified. It's just like, oh, okay, well, that's just where you... You just do what you want. You just make up any note you want on the spot. Well, yeah, that's sort of what it is, but uh, it's very much the same as learning how to speak. You can't improvise as a speaker unless you learn the alphabet. You can't learn how to read uh, unless you know how to form sentences. You know, so it's a whole it's a step that you know steps that you have to take to be able to be a good improviser. And uh, there have been some musicians who have gotten away with bullshitting their way with saying, well, you know, I'm just being free, you know. They haven't taken the time to learn their alphabet or their nouns or their verbs or their, or their pronouns or their adverbs or their adjectives to learn how to put together good sentences to be able to uh, improvise anything they want to and have the vocabulary to say whatever they want to. Like you take a guy like Barack Obama, whether or not you agree with his politics, that's besides the point. The cat is so tremendously studied and so smart. When you hear him speak, the fact that it almost sounds like he's already had it written out before he says it, that's a cat who has really studied his vocabulary. He's a guy who is a, a truly great improviser when it comes to the spoken word. And in jazz, those would be people like Herbie Hancock, who in my mind, it's just my own five cent opinion. He is the greatest living jazz musician, the greatest living improviser 
on the on the planet. And Wayne Shorter is very much the same way. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've always strived for as a musician. And I think that's what the beauty of improvisation is. The, the ones who really, really study and really understand what it is. Last weekend I saw Keith Jarrett, Jack DeJohnette, and Gary Peacock. And yeah. Gary Peacock's 74 years old. Right. So you'll definitely be playing into your 70s. And God willing. Um, I do, uh, God willing. And um, I'm sure they were improvising, but they were so tight. Right. And I think one part of that spiritual um, joining is that connect, connection that you have with the people that you're playing yeah. when you're improvising, making that profound connection. You're both creating something together, and it's, it's new, something new is coming out. That's, right. that's pretty powerful when you're playing with people yeah. like that. Well, it also helps when, I mean, that particular group you are just talking about, Keith Jarrett, they've been working together as a trio for over 25 years, so they know each other mm -hmm. inside and out. I mean, when they get on the bandstand, I'm sure at this point, they probably don't even talk. You know, they don't have to, because they already know Keith just calls the song, and then they go, you know. And most people who played with Miles Davis uh, were like that as well, you know, because Miles was like a, the most, he exemplified more than anyone else somebody who really got inside the music and really tried to train his musicians to do the same, where you don't really have to talk and give instructions. Miles would just kind of set you up in a place where you had to do a little more than you were accustomed to doing. And see, that's another thing about Miles Davis, I think, that was so genius. He let musicians be who they were. You know, a lot of musicians, you know, sometimes band, leader, band leaders will hire guys and they give them little too many directions, you know. So it's like, do this, do that, because it makes the music sound like this, and this is how I want it. That's cool if you really have a, a particular concept you're trying to go for as a musician. But I've always felt like the greatest band leaders are ones that say, okay, well, I like you as a musician. You know, when I heard you play, there's a certain thing that attracted me to you. So when I ask you to play with me, I'm not going to ask you to change that, you know. But Miles was great in that he was able to get musicians to do exactly what he heard them do that he liked, plus a little bit more, just pushed them, you know what I mean? And I think Chick Corea is like that. I think Herbie is like that. I think, I think Miles trained all of his sidemen to become leaders in that same kind of way, you know. You want to get a guy who is a raw, polished diamond, and you just want to polish the diamond. You don't want to chisel it to be another shape. You know, let that person be who they are, but just push them just a little bit, you know. And then once they get that push, then they can go on and fly on their own. There are filmmakers that do that, too, which I think is really amazing, when they, and, and what comes out when they do that, right. when they have faith in their actors and they see right. their strength, and then they just say, go with that, you know, because right. it's their... It's their natural human coming out. I would think it would be the exact same way for a filmmaker. You know, you, you get, you know, you don't hire a guy like Don Cheeto and say, be Sidney Poitier. You know what I mean? I guess some people have tried to do that, but, you know, you let a guy be who he is. You know what I mean? And that's, that's the beauty of, you know, once again, trusting the art and getting people who really have gotten on the inside of what the science of the art is and also feeling the spirituality of the art and that that perfect blend you know what i mean those are the best those are the best artists in the world 
It, and it gets them to trust themselves That's as well, right. which is a great lesson in life. Yeah. So if by, by chance you won't be able to play music, I'm sorry to mm. even say this. No, it's all right. But if by chance you're not able to play music, how, what, what do you think you'll do to find that, that sense that you, that you get two hours a night? What will you do to capture that? I mean, is there something else in mm. your life that exists right now that you feel glim- gives you glimmers of that aside from music? Um, teaching music, you know, being able to just speak about, I, I, I feel fortunate that at, you know, at my young age, I've experienced a lot with a lot of the grand wizards of this music. And I get no greater joy than passing along that info to a lot of younger cats. Because my passion is to see the world crawling with musicians, you know, and just challenging the status quo and being able to express themselves in a very smart smart but spiritual way, you know, and so if I could somehow inspire younger musicians to just, you know, just keep on playing and, and be in it for the music and nothing nothing else, you know what I mean? Like I said earlier, not because you're going to get rich, not because you're going to get famous. Uh, I mean, if you want to do that, don't bother playing jazz, you know, uh, but if you're going to be in it, be in it for the pure love of playing music and and inspiring people so i think if if i could just have a bunch of young guys in front of my face every day for two hours that would probably equal the same thing but let's hope that don't happen that's not gonna happen that is not gonna <laughs> happen go. i promise you <laughs> that is not 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 I'll just tell you what else could uh make me happy for two hours every day if i couldn't play music Lots of football. It's a team sport, so very much like like a jazz ensemble. Everybody's bouncing off of each other. Everybody's watching, paying attention. What's this guy going to do? Okay, well, if he's going to do that, then I'm going to do this. Or let me stay and do my role so he can do whatever he's going to do. You know, so it's very much the same thing. Those were the words of bassist Christian McBride, band leader, sideman, co-director of the Jazz Museum in Harlem, and all-around wonderful person. To learn more about his work and find out what he's doing and get a sense of his views and aspirations, visit his extensive website, christianmcbride.com. My name is Tani Katenjian. This is Sight Unseen, shedding light on the creative world through candid conversations with the artists of our time. You're listening to Resonant, 104.4 FM, the UK's first radio art station.